Welcome to Treasure Valley Podcast. I'm your host, Chuck. God damn it, I love scrolling through the internet and social media and reading people's nonsense posts. It feels good to find a stupid comment and immediately judge that person as an irredeemable moron. My favorite Facebook feed to watch is KTVB's. I took data on 24 hours of posts, and out of the 15 news updates, four of them devolved into arguments about hot topics such as gun control, COVID, or vaccines. Something as simple as a weather report has a penchant for spiraling into several instances of political arguments surrounding climate change. I love it. Of course I love it. I'm a human being. And guess what? In the words of Ren Hoek from the 90s cartoon phenomenon Ren and Stimpy, I'm angry. I've never been this angry in my entire life. Hey, I feel great. I love being angry. But is it true? Do we love to feel angry? Well, yes. In some cases, we do. And anger can even become an addiction. How? Well, anger releases chemicals into our brain that make us feel good. In an article from Psych Central entitled Anger and Addiction... The neurotransmitter chemicals, known as catecholamines, are released when we're angry, causing a blast of kinetic energy that can last a few minutes. In a counterintuitive way, feeling bad sometimes feels good. Like any addiction, anger can induce discharge of dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine, also referred to as adrenaline and noradrenaline. The adrenaline rush contributes to a sense of strength and invulnerability. Our brains register pleasure when these chemicals are doing what comes naturally to them and then get reinforced each time we engage in similar behaviors, i.e. getting pissed online. For some, feeling anger creates a sense of aliveness that may enhance an otherwise constricted or neutral emotional state. So essentially, anger can give us a safe adrenaline rush. Maybe you don't have the stomach to go hella skiing or base jumping, but we can all read an inane comment from a stranger and use their spelling and grammatical errors as ammunition for a witty retort. It feels good to put people down. I mean, humans naturally fall into a hierarchy, and that release of adrenaline coupled with the feeling of knocking someone off their high fucking horse is doubly satisfying. And it never stops until my ulcer starts acting up. But seriously... Being constantly annoyed isn't good for your health. From Healthline.com, persistent surges of adrenaline can damage your blood vessels, increase your blood pressure, and elevate your risk of heart attacks or stroke. It can also result in anxiety, weight gain, headaches, and insomnia. All those negative symptoms make a lot of sense. I thought Tucker Carlson was looking a bit chunkier this past year. So just like anything, too much anger isn't good for your health. Make sure to take a deep breath from time to time and try not being a huge asshole your circulatory system will thank you. But seriously, we live in such a contentious time, what the hell can we do to lower our anger and stress levels? Well, thankfully, I have the answer. I'll get to that in a moment, but first, a brief review. You may have noticed the past couple of decades, the American people have become full of contempt for their political adversaries due to a plethora of factors that I don't have the time or expertise to cover. There was a really amazing Freakonomics podcast that talked about our country's current political zeitgeist. The episode is titled, How Can We Break Our Addiction to Contempt? And the guest is an economist named Arthur Brooks. Brooks has done some eye-opening research regarding angry individuals. The enlightening finding I pulled from this interview was that people who ingest the most political media show the most contempt for their political adversaries. Listening to too much news was the sole factor that Brooks was able to connect to politically motivated anger. You're not more likely to hate the other side if you're conservative, liberal, religious, man, woman, white, or brown. If you're reading and watching a lot of news, though, you're probably infuriated with the people who oppose your viewpoint. 
At the conclusion of Brooks' findings, I was a bit disappointed that he simply said, and I'm paraphrasing here, love is an action that we need to express more, and that will help cool our political climate. It wasn't a very easily actionable solution. Now is when I go into my suggested remedies. I've divided my solutions into two different categories, what one can do to stay cooler as an individual and what we can do at a societal level to ease the strain. So, if you're feeling pissed off all the time and can't seem to calm down in spite of your doctor's equal vexation, what can you do? One actionable solution is to keep a positivity journal. I mean, after all, isn't negative thinking just a habit that can be broken like any other habit? Well, it turns out that changing your perspective to a more positive one is possible. From the study, Journaling and its Effect on Positive Thinking Among Student Teachers by Dr. Sinjay, a group of people were coached on how to think positively over the course of two months, during which time they were required to keep a daily gratitude journal. After the two months' time, these people had a more sunny disposition compared to a similar group of people that didn't keep a journal and weren't trained on how to be more optimistic. That is great news. Think positive thoughts every day, make a habit of writing them down, and maybe you'll be happier yourself. I'm going to divulge here a bit in case you need anecdotal evidence of the effectiveness of maintaining a positivity journal. A few years back, I decided to keep a daily positivity journal, and I did so for several months. I'm one of those people that naturally has a sunny disposition, but when illness struck a loved one, I had my first experience with prolonged bouts of sadness and apathy. I forced myself to exercise several days a week. I ate healthier. I stopped drinking for a while. That was a really hard thing to do, but for some reason, I couldn't shake the fog. I started reading the scientific research about various self-help methods for acute depression, and I found several examples of people using positivity journals to help them feel better. I thought, hey, that makes sense. Instead of allowing a situation outside of my control to dictate my mental state, I need to actively find ways to focus my attention on those things that will make me feel better. So I did, and it worked. I took the journaling a step further, though, and also included a daily task. I challenged myself to go out of my way to do one nice thing for someone every single day. That night, I would write in my journal the nice thing I did, as well as three good things that happened to me that day. It was pretty hard initially to think of three positive occurrences. Clearly, my mind was focused on the negative. But as the weeks and months went on, I found it easier and easier to crank out a list of amazing things that happened to me during my waking hours. All these positive things had been there the entire time, but I stopped noticing them. And eventually, my irritatingly jovial self returned. Now that I know I can choose to focus on positive aspects of my life, people, and society, I've realized that when I start to bitch and moan to the point of feeling genuinely irritated, that is my choice too. I'm not saying I don't get upset anymore. In my experience, getting upset is reactionary. It's an easy pattern to slip into, especially with the ridiculously charged news and social media environments. Staying positive is hard. It takes effort. You have to keep your mind sharp and look for the silver lining. So there you go. If you're feeling an anger hangover, the medicine might be to keep a daily tally of all that's going well for you. Unfortunately, I don't foresee all the social media attack addicts and highly paid news anchors changing their habits anytime soon. So what can we do at a societal level to incentivize people to cooperate rather than cut each other's throats? If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that I'm a big fan of Andrew Yang. He ran for president in 2020 on the platform of universal basic income, and he lost. He then ran for mayor of New York and lost that election as well. After two failed attempts to win an election within the Democratic Party, he decided to go rogue and start his own political party and movement. His party is the Forward Party, and I've joined. Andrew Yang has correctly identified the stranglehold that the Democrats and Republicans have on our democracy. He has moved his primary focus away from universal basic income toward making our government more democratic. Why is a more representative government important? 
Well, he speculates that the two-party duopoly is causing further polarization in our country. These two parties are pushing further left and right due to a lack of competition of political ideas, and neither party truly represents the American public. If you want evidence that Americans are unhappy with their government, only 21% of Americans approve of the job Congress is doing. If you want evidence that the Republicans and Democrats have our government locked down, look at re-election rates. They're usually around 90%. So, only 21% of people think things are going well, but we're stuck with the same group governing us year after year. That doesn't sound like a democracy to me. Elections aren't even competitive. Look at Idaho. What are the chances the Republican nominee loses the election for governor in 2022? I wouldn't take 100 to 1 odds on that bet. No way. Republicans run this state, which is unfortunate because according to Pew Research, only 49% of Idahoans identify as Republican or Republican-leaning. 32% lean Democratic, and 19% don't lean in either direction. Our state Congress currently has 58 Republican representatives and 12 Democratic representatives. The ratio in the Senate is 28 to 6. Those percentages do not mirror the population, especially when looking at the 19% of voters without a party affiliation. It makes sense to me that people are generally in a pissy mood when you look at those numbers. And somehow, the two parties have been successfully blaming the other for our societal woes when they are both culpable. So what can we do to fix this problem? Well, Andrew Yang suggests a combination of open primaries and ranked choice voting. What does that mean? I can use Alaska as an example because they passed open primaries and ranked choice voting in their state in 2020. So in 2022, they'll be using this new, more democratic system, and this is how it works. From now on, in Alaska, primaries for potential governors, federal senators, congresspeople, and some other state positions will now be nonpartisan. As in, the Republican and Democratic parties don't get to ordain their candidate through a closed system any longer. Instead, all potential candidates will run against each other regardless of political affiliation, and the top four candidates will be on the final ballot. These four candidates could potentially be all the same party or all independents. Who knows? There will be a lot more possibilities besides one Democrat and one Republican. Once the four candidates are selected, ranked choice voting comes in. For their final vote, Alaskans will be allowed to rank their candidates instead of getting a single binary vote. Currently, there's an incentive in our voting system to not vote for an independent candidate. Look at the blowback Ralph Nader got in 2000 for running his presidential campaign in Florida. A lot of Democrats blame him for Al Gore losing the election. This scenario is no longer a problem with ranked choice voting. In Alaska, you can put your independent candidate as your first choice and a Republican or Democrat as your second choice. If your candidate receives too few votes for them to possibly win, your second choice will now be counted. You're no longer throwing away your vote in Alaska if you have the gall to back an independent, thus helping erode the Democrat-Republican stranglehold. Personally, I'm saddened by the far-right-leaning candidates looking to win Idaho's Republican primary for governor in 2022. If you want a piece of evidence that Republicans are moving too far to the right in the state, just look at the campaigns of Janice McGeechan and Ammon Bundy. It should be laughable that these two seek to lead our state. Here's a quote from the Issues and Policies portion of the McGeechan for Governor website. Vaccine mandates have no place in a free society, and no Idahoan should ever face discrimination, denial of service, or loss of employment due to their personal medical decision to forego a vaccine. Now, as a business owner, shouldn't you have the right to run your business how you choose? Isn't that a conservative principle? I found it frustrating when Governor Little left the state, and McGeechan, our current lieutenant governor, stepped in to ban mask mandates. Isn't that an example of government overstepping its bounds? Isn't a mandate against mandates just another mandate? 
Then there's the whole critical race theory, anti-free speech witch hunt she's been on, wasting taxpayer dollars to chase a ghost. We should probably thank our legislator for giving McGeechin the courage to go full McCarthy after they essentially outlawed an idea. Then there's Ammon Bundy. This guy literally took up arms against the federal government because he wanted his cattle to graze for free on federal land. His standpoint is ridiculously confusing to me. So you want the federal land to be private, right? Well, you'd still have to pay something, jackass. From VoteBundy.com, I pulled an idiotic line of reasoning I'd like to share in regards to Bundy's stance on welfare. He says, or someone says for him probably, welfare is a destructive element in a free society. Truly, welfare is nothing more than legal plunder in the name of helping the poor. To make welfare payments, governments must forcefully steal from productive members of society to give to those who they claim to be more needy. Of course, government itself gets its hands in and takes a cut for itself. This is simply wrong. And when put into perspective, the average citizen knows it's wrong. I'll explain with three simple questions. One, is it wrong for me to steal money out of your wallet? Yes, it is. Two, is it wrong for me to steal money out of your wallet if I give a portion of the money I stole to the poor? Yes, it is. Stealing is stealing. Number three, then is it wrong for the government to steal money out of your wallet if they give a portion of the stolen money to the poor? Obviously, it still is. Theft doesn't become moral when the government does it. The way I read his point is that Bundy sees taxes as theft. But I would say without taxes, we wouldn't be able to fund a government. Taxation isn't such a simple binary issue. If we don't fund the government, then we'd probably revert to some sort of feudalism with people paying corporations to live. Maybe you see welfare as a waste of taxpayer dollars, but I think it's a bit nutty to conflate taxes with stealing. I mean, we do get to vote. So, in short, in Idaho, if you don't like Brad Little as governor, the Republican monopoly offers you an anti-free speech authoritarian or a gun-toting militant anarchist. Not a lot of good options. Thanks, Republican Party, for contributing to the rising dissatisfaction and anger of your constituents. So there you go. That's how we fix our country's current anger-fueled trajectory. Positivity journaling, open primaries, and ranked choice voting. Hopefully you agree with me, because I'm right. If you don't agree, that's fine. I'd love to read your thoughts as to why I'm wrong. You can direct all comments to the email address, shit at ihopeyoudie.com. Thank you for listening to Treasure Valley Podcast. If you made it this far into the podcast, do me a favor and tell a friend about it.